0: This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The attack on Salman Rushdie was a shock to everyone in the literary world. In this interview from 2012 upon the publication of his memoir, Joseph Anton, he discusses the fatwa, how he went into hiding and then eventually returned to a somewhat normal life. At what point did you realize, or did you always realize, you wanted to create this memoir?
1: I always knew from very early on, after the trouble began with the Satanic Verses, I always knew that I should keep a record. I started keeping a journal because I didn't want to let myself forget the the kind of dailiness of it, the detail of it, you know. And that was partly an act of optimism, thinking, you know, one day I'm going to be at the other end of this tunnel and I'm going to be able to write this. And although there was there were quite long periods when I I didn't think that was probable, you know. And I, I thought maybe I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be in a position to tell this story. But I mean, certainly I always thought that if things went well, and there were a moment sometime in the future when... I was out of the nightmare that I I would want to tell that story. But actually, when I did get out of the nightmare, which is about, just about, what is it, ten and a half years ago, the last thing on earth I wanted to do was to re-enter that frame of mind, to go back down that tunnel in order to come back out with a book. So I just left it alone. I thought, I want to write novels, I want to write stories, I want to do the stuff that I became a writer to do. And I used to tell my friends as a joke, that I w- thought of this as my old age pension. You know, I thought one of these days I've run, I'm going to run out of novels to write, and then I can always write this, and it'll, you know, pay the hospital bills.
0: So, what happened to uh, to get you on track? Was it after after Shalimar the Clown? Then,
1: no, it was was really much later than that. I mean, it was, one of the things that really helped was that I had sold my literary archive to Emory University in Atlanta, and they had done this. I mean, I'd sold that. That was about eight years ago, and they did this amazing job of cataloguing. Bits of paper that were just in cardboard boxes, you know, and it took them over four years. And suddenly I had my whole life neatly organized, you know, everything had a barcode. And I suddenly thought, oh, a lot of the really awful work has been done for me. Suddenly it's, everything is there and available to me. And so maybe now that the book has become so much easier to write, maybe it's time to write it. So that was, I think that was probably the trigger.
0: That happened at what point in terms of, say, Luca and the Fire of Life? Uh,
1: It was while I was writing Luca and the Fire of Life that that material became available. And I started, for instance, you know, this journal that I'd kept all that time. Well, the first first many years were longhand in notebooks. So there were all these notebooks. And then, you know, computers arrived. I mean, I had my first computer. I got it about 1993. So that was about four years into this thing. And after that, I was keeping notes in both longhand journals and computer files. So all that was printed out and sent to me, and I started slowly reading my way through it. How did that
0: feel going back? I mean, it, it becomes clear in reading your book, Joseph Anton, Solomon Rushdie, it, it, it becomes clear that this is a period in your life that
1: very, very painful. Yes, well, one of the reasons why in the end I decided to write in the third person is that when I read these journals, I understood that the the me today that's writing the book was in some ways not the same as the self 20 years earlier to whom these things were happening, because that person was under just colossal stress. And that, and reading these journals, it was often evident that the, there were moments anyway, passages of time, when the person writing the book was clearly not in great mental shape, you know, that there was great... Great Depression, you know, bordering on despair. I mean, I read these messages, so to speak, from my younger self. And, I mean, they were invaluable because they showed me, they showed me novelistically, if you like, how to enter into the character that I had been at that time and and created on the page. But I did feel different from him. You know, I felt that I'd come to a calmer place, you know, a more peaceful place in, in which I could reflect on these matters in tranquility, as the saying goes, you know. And so I thought I just wanted to make it clear that there was this slight detachment between the author of the book and the subject of the book, even though they're the same person. Were
0: there times where you're reading this and you're going, that's not
1: how I remember it at all? Well, certainly it's not that so much as that there were just things I had forgotten. You know, and that's because no matter how good your memory is, a, a, an event that that took, took place for more than a decade, you know, there are just going to be long passages where you remember, and there were certainly, there were there were things that I, there were moments or episodes which I thought had happened very close together. In my memory, they happened within weeks or months, weeks of each other. And when I read, I was really surprised sometimes to discover that there were incidents that I thought were close in time that were actually more than a year apart. And so the, my memory had played some tricks of that kind, which I had to unscramble. You also made a decision to incorporate
0: elements of your personal life that were pretty painful, particularly in
1: terms of Marianne Wiggins. Yeah. The decision I made was that things that, without which I couldn't fully tell the story of what happened to me, you know, I would need to tell. I mean, there are things about all the women in my life that I left out because they weren't relevant to the main story I was telling. When those incidents or episodes D- did lead to consequences, you know, in in, in my in the life I was leading that I felt I have to tell that story. I mean, I hope the one thing that uh, anyone reading this book will feel, whether they like it or not, whether, they're, whether they like the person being described or not, is that the author of the book is really trying to tell the truth. You know, my going in position was simply that, just tell the goddamn truth. You know, nobody's forcing you to write a memoir. You know, if you're going to write it, try and be as honest and open as you can. And I think that's that's true about whether I'm writing about myself or Marianne.
0: I guess on some level you were also divorcing yourself from it and and seeing it as another person. I mean if if you're too close it yeah. becomes difficult you start self censoring.
1: Yeah, well I think that was the reason why I didn't write it before, because I just I didn't feel I had the right let's say, creative distance from the material. I I knew that it was a good story, you know. I mean, it's this terrible thing that your life turns into a good story. And I knew also that I wanted to write it novelistically. You know, I thought that there was actually a shape to this story. There was a sort of beginning and end. and, And I wanted to use the skill of the novelist to make characters vivid on the page. Because what I felt is it doesn't matter whether they're real people or not. If they're not vivid on the page, you know, then the reader doesn't care about them that much. And if the reader doesn't care about that that much, then they don't care what happens to them. So if you want to draw people into the story, you really have to write as if you're writing a novel and make these actually existing people, including the actually existing person with my name, into a believable person on the page. So that was very much, and that requires distance. That requires not being right, right up against, with your nose up against the events you're talking about.
0: Well, what about your son
1: Zafar, who sometimes doesn't come across all that well? well, he's he's okay about it. I mean, you know, I mean you know he's it's just about him growing up, you know right. I mean actually, I think he he, given what teenagers can be like, he you know he he gave me a pretty easy ride on the whole. And actually, I really hope that what comes through in the book is that I really admire the way in which he handled this because, you know when this whole episode began he was nine he wasn't mean he was nine and a half he was not even ten and uh, by the time it finished he was almost 21 and so he had to grow up through this nightmare and on top of that he had the additional nightmare of his mother passing away you know when he was 20 years old and she was supposed to be the safe parent you know she was supposed to be the one who was taking care of him and she was supposed to be the sort of the rock and the danger was you know to his father and I can't imagine how he felt when the safe parent was the one who died. So he had, I mean, a colossal amount to deal with in these years. And I think, it, you know, now he's grown up to be this astonishingly kind of serene, mature, good-natured, sort of non-screwed-up guy. You know, he's 33 now. And it's, I think, just says a great deal for his strength of character that he was able to handle this. Well, you also had some great times in there. The periods
0: when you were in uh, on Long Island mm-hmm. and later getting away—I mean, the yeah. vacations from from the Bumble, the yeah. jail, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that—that
1: yes. that was in the later. I mean, that was that came towards the last several years of this twelve-year period. And really, I've always been enormously grateful that the United States allowed me to do that. That I was told that it would be okay if I came and just. Made my own decisions about what was sensible and not sensible, and and to do, and it felt it felt just I don't know it felt more dignified somewhere to get regain control over your life, and so I began to come initially for for short periods of time, like a week or ten days, and then gradually those got longer, and eventually I was spending two or three months in like New York or upstate New York or Long Island, and then yes, I was able to bring my family over and. and for me, that was, it was, I mean, first of all, it was exhilarating. And secondly, it showed me that there was a way out of the bubble, you know. Uh, and, and it meant also that when in the end the British came to the conclusion that things were better and they didn't need to go on, that the adjustment back was quite easy because I'd already got used to it in America. But I'm, there's no question, I think, that the reason I then made my life in New York City had to do with the fact that that's where I regained my freedom. The last few years, it was sort of weird that I would come to to America, sometimes, as I say, for two or three months, and lead a perfectly normal life, you know, take the subway, go and do my own shopping, drive my own car, whatever, go to the movies, go to Yankee Stadium, see a game, you know, all of that. And then I would go back to England and be put in a bulletproof Jaguar, and there would be policemen all around me. And the dissonance of those two worlds for a time was very difficult, and eventually I I was really able to persuade the British that, you know, really, we need to stop this.
0: Well, Salman Rushdie, let's go back a little bit to the origins of the story and the fatwa. When you were working on Satanic Verses, quite obviously you weren't thinking in terms of anybody seeing this in a negative light, and when they actually read the book, they were fine with it, but you did choose to name it Satanic Verses. Mm. Do you think the title itself was what got them going? No,
1: no I don't think so. I mean, actually, I didn't. The thing is, I called it The Satanic Verses. And, and what happened with this the removal of the definite article uh, is that, you know, The Satanic Verses is a novel. Satanic Verses, as I say in the book, are verses that are satanic. You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, it suddenly became a way of characterizing the book by dropping the 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 beginning. But no, I mean this is an episode that's even in the Muslim world it's well known. Um, this uh, episode of the alleged temptation of the Prophet, you know, to, his flirtation with accepting three popular pagan bird goddesses, popular in, in pre-Islamic Mecca, of accepting them into the pantheon of Islam not at the same level as god but at the level of the angels let's say sort of semi divinity level and the suggestion is that he was offered some kind of deal that if he were to accept these three then the religion the new religion would not be persecuted you know and he he seems to have flirted with that and then rejected it and this this episode survives in a lot of the the more reputable traditions of the prophet and as western historians have said since it's not particularly glorious story. The reason that it survived is probably that it's true, you know, because otherwise it would easily have, could easily have been dropped. Um, Anyway, the the incident is something that I learned about when I was at Cambridge studying the early, I mean, I I did a history degree. So, and, and in my last year, one of the special papers that I did was about the life of muhammad and the rise of islam and that's where i found out about this
0: you mean you didn't find out about it when you were growing up or anything
1: no no i didn't know this incident then oh. i know mean, it was i mean i knew you know we all grow up knowing about the religion which is your family religion but i didn't know about it in that detail it was it was when i started studying at university so i was would have been 20, 20 21 years old when i came across the story for the first time and i mean i was already thinking about wanting to be a writer at that time, and I remember thinking when I came up with came across the story. I remember thinking, you know, it's a good story, and sort of filed it away. And you know, twenty years later, I found out how good a story it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the, uh, the shock at not knowing.
0: I mean, when they first announced it, you didn't know if it was a con or what.
1: Nobody really knew how to to evaluate it initially because it was so outrageous, you know. And there was a, a desire to believe that it was just rhetorical, not just my, it was my desire, but I think much of the police force and even the politicians, you know, there was a sense that this can't, this can't go on, you know, it has to be stopped. It will stop because how can the leader of one country demand the death of the citizen of another country who's living in his own country and who hasn't committed any crime in that country? How can, how can the leader of head of one state point across the world to another country and say, kill that person in that country. It's outrageous. And therefore, it was generally thought it's going to be fixed, you know. Okay, the old man said what he said, but now, you know, diplomats will go to work, politicians will go to work, and there's going to be going to find some loophole and exit strategy, and it's going to, in the way that things are fixed, it's going to be fixed. We all thought that. And, and at the point where I was first, where the police first came and said, you know, that they were, that they were going to offer me protection, I think they believed, as I believed, that it was for a short time and ended up being 12 years.
0: As this unfolded, uh, you began having to live in safe houses. Did you always keep your bags packed?
1: Well, here's the thing. This term safe house, I just have to deconstruct that a bit because I think we've all read spy novels and we therefore believe that there exist these things called government safe houses, which somehow exist in a vacuum. You know, when nobody knows where they are, they're probably quite nice. And, but you were to pay
0: for your own. <laughs> yeah. Well, the,
1: well, if there were such things as government safe houses, I was never offered one. I mean, I was told a that I couldn't go home. I mean, I had a perfectly good house. You know, and I sometimes feel that it was a mistake on my part to agree not to go home. You know, I sometimes think that if I had it to do over. I would say, look, you know, uh, I'm just going back to my house. And if you want to protect me, then then I'll be, that's where I'll be. Uh, but I didn't because they said that it would be too dangerous for the neighbors and that the cost of protecting the street would be sort of prohibitive, so on. So I was sort of persuaded by that. And then they said that it was up to me to find the places that I had to go. And those places, by the way, couldn't just be any old place. There were all kinds of rules about what they should be like.
0: Well, you, you wound up almost like a, a homeless person yeah. going from, um, not quite, but it, it, it almost was an analog to going from living room couch to living room couch. Yeah,
1: it was, I mean, it was maybe even more stressful than the actual threats of violence was this, uh, s- this kind of semi-homelessness, you know, of, of having to wonder, where am I going to be next week? And how will I find it?
0: You're a writer, and I know that you went through writer's block. We discussed this in mm-hmm. earlier interviews. But as an interviewer, as a writer myself a little bit, I need my books. Yeah. I need these things surrounding me. What yes. did you do?
1: I had to learn to do without. Because I also had been that kind of writer where I wanted to be in my space. I needed my stuff around me. And and in that little cocoon, of, I felt good and I could work. And I had to learn... To change the habit of a lifetime, because I because I basically told myself either you change that habit, or you'll never write again. You know, so you choose. Both Haroon and the Sea of Stories
0: and Moore's Last Sigh were written under those conditions. Now I could understand writing a children's book, but writing a full-fledged long novel,
1: yeah, uh, a historical novel. It was very hard, and it, it was made easier by the fact that towards the last part of writing that novel, they finally, the, the British authorities finally agreed to let me have something much more like a permanent base. You know? and I guess for the last year that I was working on that book, I was in one place. So without that, I agree, it would have been very, very hard. And once I was in one place, I could also arrange to get a lot of my books there and so on, and just, you know, life began to feel uh, like a writer's life again.
0: You were listening to an interview with Salman Rushdie. Joseph Anton
1: was the pseudonym you had to use. Well, Joseph from Conrad and Anton from Chekhov. And the only, the only person other than the police and I who really knew about that was my bank manager because one of the reasons for having it was so that I could spend money. You know, I had to be, I had to be able to write checks. You would credit cards? No, I didn't, but I could write checks and uh, use that to, you know, to pay for the rental of buildings and you know, so on and so on. And the other reason for having it was that the police needed to train themselves to use another name so that if they were, you know, they're very athletic people, they were always needing to go out for runs and so on, because it's different. Actually, I sometimes thought it was harder for them being cooped up in a house than for me, because, you know, I'm a writer. I'm used to being cooped up in a house. But these were men of actions. So they worried that if they were, you know, running around the block or whatever and talking to each other, and if they accidentally used my name and somebody overheard it, it would sort of blow the cover, you know. So they would need, they needed to find a name. So they said, choose a name, and and I made up this name from these two writers that I admired. And then, rather to my irritation, they decided to use a diminutive and, and, call, <laughs> and, and call me Joe. And I thought, you know, no, no, that's not it. That, I don't know why this is. This is a curious psychological tick, because why is Joe worse than Joseph? You know, they're, they're, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're both not me, you know. But for some reason, the the, the diminutive was very irritating.
0: One of the more striking and depressing elements of the book was, uh, I know you had a lot of support, but a lot of people were just absolutely nasty about the fact that you'd written a novel. A lot of people write novels that are controversial, Mm. and
1: yet everyone from John Le Carre on down were just vicious. Yeah, there was some viciousness. It was something that I found very hard to understand in those days, and, and actually have found it, even to this day, hard to, to forget, is that there was an attempt by some people to blacken my character, you know, to, to say, to suggest, so to speak, that I was such a low-grade individual, that I was not worthy of public sympathy. For example, the fact that I refused to withdraw the novel under Islamic pressure That was translated into my being arrogant, you know, uh, that was an act of arrogance to insist on my obviously fiendish work remaining in print. Sometimes that was translated into greed, that I was making a great deal of money out of this scandal, and that's what I wanted, and that's what I had tried to achieve. I wanted to create a a, a storm so that I could become more famous and richer. You know, there were all these allegations, bits of the tabloid press, uh, you know, collaborated in this, some conservative politicians, one or two writers, not many, most of the writers were pretty much in solidarity, but one or two of them. And I think that, you know, one of the characteristics of mudslinging is that mud sticks, uh, if it's thrown with enough force for long enough. And I think they did help to create in bits of the public mind, particularly in England, not particularly outside England. I'm talking about really inside England. That there was a perception that I was like that, that I was this, this, uh, this dreadful individual of low integrity who had done all, who had sort of annoyed half the world in order to make myself money and fame. And why should we care about him? You know? And that was something almost harder to fight against uh, than the Islamic threats.
0: I mean, you mentioned it in the book, Monty Python and, you know, Life of Brian, people have been making fun of religion, yeah. not that you were making fun of it, yeah. but people yeah, have been yeah. making fun of it for thousands of Thousands. Years. I mean,
1: I just, you know, uh, I've seen Book of Mormon now twice, and I know that a lot of the Mormon leadership has been to see it, and they thought it was funny too, you know, and, and yet it's full of fun at Mormon's expense, and that's grown up. To react like that. You know, and sometimes people have said that, you know, Islam in its own calendar is still only in the Middle Ages, you know, it's still in the 15th century whatever, and and Christianity in the 15th century, after all, was full of inquisitions and, uh, you know, burnings at the stake and so on and so on. So, you know, give Islam time and it will, it, it will reach the point of maturity that other religions have. But, you know, Mormonism is much younger than Islam, and it's got there already. So I don't think that's an argument that works. But it was very, very odd to be maligned and to have my character maligned when my life was being threatened.
0: Well, I recall a, a, a conversation at KPFA with a guy named Yusuf, who later died of AIDS, who was part of their, the gay collective there, who was in favor of the fatwa uh, as a converted Muslim. And I was like looking at him and going, if you were over there, they'd have stoned you to death. It didn't make sense. Yeah.
1: Well, people called Yusuf did make some mistakes. There was another guy called Yusuf who used to be called Kat before that. Kat Stevens, who became Yusuf Islam, and he he was in favor of it too. You know, we live in this culture with no memory. So now Kat Stevens says, Oh, I never said any of those things. And and people are willing to kind of believe that he didn't, that he was somehow misrepresented. But actually he said those things on television and the tapes exist. He said these he said those things to journalists from the New York Times who Remember them and have written about them. So this was not a matter of doubt. You know, he did say that very openly that he, you know, wished me dead until he needed to make some money from his music again. I guess.
0: Well, Salman Rushdie, we're now going through a period where suddenly there's been conflict, and there was that video. You stop every so often and discuss some of these issues, including the notion of cultural relativism. I kept thinking, you know it doesn't quite work that way we have to take a stand somewhere but at the same time before reading that now that kind of put me in a better pe- better space than i was in terms of the in terms of the video because a part of me was going well yeah but was writing art and this is clearly the purpose of this video yeah. is to rile up sentiment and create what happens mm-hmm. and yet at the same time it's all
1: free speech yeah unfortunately the problem of, of the free speech argument is that you have to defend people you can't stand. You know, you have to, you, because free speech is not just free speech for people you admire. You know, it's also for people who you think of as reprehensible. You know, people can do bad things with free speech as well as good. You have to defend the Ku Klux Klan you know, as, as well as um, Martin Luther King. It's like that. If, you, if you're going to defend the principle, then you have to defend people who use the principle badly. Very often in free speech cases, you find yourself, defend, find yourself defending material that you personally detest. You know, because, of course, it's no trick to defend the free speech of people you either agree with or who don't particularly upset you. you know, it's when people really upset you that you discover if you believe in free speech or not.
0: Part of the, the arguments by some of the critics of mm-hmm. Satanic Verses is it's not a good book. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking... It doesn't matter. Mm. It doesn't matter the quality of the book.
1: I know. I mean, actually, it doesn't matter because the principle is the principle. Although I was, I suppose, vain enough to think that there actually is a quality defense here. You know, you actually can defend this in the way that 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 Ulysses was or, or Lady Chatterley right. were, were defended. Um, and actually, of course, many of the people who defended Lady Chatterley afterwards admitted that they thought it was a really bad book, but they had sort of perjured themselves to, to, for the sake of its 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 uh, its liberty, if you like. Anyway, but uh, you see, violence changes the subject. I mean, it seems to me it's perfectly possible to vehemently disagree with a piece of work and to say that it's offensive and insulting and so on and so on, and you're absolutely entitled to do that. And, and, to, and to speak back, if you like, against that piece of speech with all the vehemence at your disposal. You know, I mean, that's, that's legitimate. And I mean, even other things. I mean, when there were demonstrations against the satanic verses, for example, I mean, that people have a right to demonstrate. You know, um, you can't assume if you do something contentious that people will be on your side. The moment violence enters the story, the story changes. Then the question is, how do you face, face up to violence? And, and then you have to have a no compromise position, you know, and this is quite simply to put it at its simplest It's a lesson we learn in the school playground, you know If you if you give in to the threat of violence, if you give in to bullying What you what you know is that there will be more bullying. There will not be less bullying You know, if, if you if you appease the bully You make sure that he will bully you some more, you know, and not less. It doesn't solve the problem It makes the problem worse So the only position when violence is threatened in response to, you know, a a novel or a cartoon or a crappy YouTube video is a no-surrender position. You know, we live like this. is how we live. We live in a country in which we have these rights, and we're not going to give them up. Full stop. The end. Salman Rushdie, what is the daily insult? (laughs) Well, you know, we were talking about it earlier, this... this, uh, Willingness among some parts of the the british media. It was only the british media uh, To to run these absurd Not when I say absurd, but sometimes very hurtful attacks on me. And it was all the newspapers. It wasn't like it was just one particular tabloid. So, so I just invented, for comic reasons, this newspaper called The Daily Insult. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that, if, I sometimes felt that I'd be sitting there at home, I'd be opening the newspapers like anybody else, just and then suddenly like a hand would reach up for the newspapers and sort of smack me around the face. <laughs> I mean, I remember people said terrible things, you know, I and mean, I remember an article that appeared in which some woman journalist was writing about some spurious piece of research, which, which suggested that beautiful women liked the company of unattractive men, because unattractive men were more attentive to them than, than kind of gorgeous guys. And, and she said, this must be very good news in Salman Rushdie's hideout. <laughs> I thought, you know,
0: excuse me? <laughs> How did it feel to be reading about yourself as this bizarre third party that had nothing to do with who you were?
1: Well, it's one of the reasons why, again, that of course, the book's title is partly because that's the name I had to take. But it's also a way of suggesting that the question of identity, my identity, in those years became very problematic because there were so many people... Making me—it wasn't just that I had to invent an identity. There were many people inventing identities. You know, there were many Salman Rushdie's walking around, um, serving various different agendas. And it was one of the hardest things that there were all these sort of fake versions of me that I found it very hard to, to, dis, to dismiss, to dispel. Because for a long time I wasn't able to be that visible. You know, and in that vacuum where there was just this empty space with my name on it, people could make up that the person to fill that empty space anywhere they liked. And it was really, truly bizarre.
0: And of course, it was even more bizarre because you'd meet people, that was who they thought you were.
1: Yes, less now, because I think now that, now that I have been able to be around for the last decade, and people sort of have a sense of what I'm really like, some of those fake Rushdis have faded away. But it used to be that I would walk into rooms and I could see in people's eyes that they thought they were looking at the person they'd read about in the Daily Insult, <laughs> and and, uh, and I would have to, uh, I would have to do the work of erasing that person before they could actually see who I was, and that was uh, very weird, very
0: weird. Uh, a number of other things uh, stopped me reading the book and closing Joseph Anton down for a, a moment. One of them is the rise of fundamentalism, not just in muslim countries but in the united states and of course there were the riots in the early 90s in your your own bombay the um, fundamentalist hindus what do you think is going on it seems to be around the world
1: well it's i think it's a number of different things that are going on part of it has to do with economics it's just to do with the fact that you've got a generation of young men almost all our young men in situations of great economic hardship, where they don't really have work, the chances of them making a decent life for themselves, of making a family, you know, living in a kind of decent, happy way, are very, very remote. It's very hard for them to ever even have that as a dream, you know. So when people are that deprived of the ordinary hopes of human beings, you know, it creates anger. And that anger can be channeled by unscrupulous, persons, whether secular or religious leaders, and there's been a lot of that. I sometimes think it's also something else, which is that we live in an age where the rate of change has been colossal, colossal, you know, almost every week there's some transformation of some kind, whether technological or political or scientific, whatever. And I think it's bewildering to human beings to live in a time when they can't take anything as fixed, you know, when everything is shifting and changing all the time.
0: Do you think that's even the case in places like Saudi Arabia?
1: Yeah, I think everywhere, because that this rate the rate of change is global now. And I think there's a kind of mind which is so ill at ease with that transformation that it reaches out for something permanent, you know and and religious faith offers that, from simplicities, you know, which you are told are eternal and unchanging. You know, and you can hold on to those at like like a life raft, you know, in in, in a metamorphosing world. So I think there's a whole range of different things. And a lot of it though has to do with I think just with politics. The fact is that there are political movements and it's not just Islamic, you know, it's it's the Christian movements in this country, it's, as you said, Hindu extremists in India, um, highly organized for political reasons, looking for power in their societies. Who are able to use the language of religion um, to galvanize communities?
0: You said uh, in an earlier interview with me, you said something like you think that the Islamic craziness will burn out in about seventy-five
1: years because they all seem to. You still feel that way? You know, sometimes I do. Yes, I mean, I, what what I do think is that what's evident is that in those countries of the world where Islamic extremism has acquired most power those are also the countries in which it's most disliked. You know, so if you, if you look at Afghanistan, Iran, Algeria, at the time of the Islamic extremists rising there, those groups were always very disliked. You know, and I think that's still the case across the Islamic world. It's just that those groups are very powerful. They're very well organized and very ruthless. But I mean, I thought it was interesting, for example, that after the awful attack on the American consulate in Benghazi and the killing of the ambassador, that in the last days, the people of the city rose up against the militia that did this and literally drove them out of their stronghold and drove them out of town, kicked them out of town, ran them out of town on a rail, you know. I mean, there we have a, a pro-American demonstration in a Muslim country. You don't see a whole lot of that, you know. But I thought it, it it showed that the people of Libya were disgusted by the way in which Islam had been used in that in that situation. With fatal results, you know, and and they took their own reprisals against these people. So, I mean, the hope is that gradually the citizenry of these countries will be in that way emboldened to act themselves to act against these extremists and to drive them out. Salman Rushdie.
0: You tell the story more than once of a Spanish mayor who hid out from Franco for 20 years. Where did you find out about that? Yeah,
1: as it happened, my first wife, Clarissa, who is the mother of my older son, her mother settled eventually in in southern Spain in a small town called Mijas, which is just inland from the coast of southern Spain, in the hills. And when I was there, I was shown this book, which was written, had been written by an English journalist, about uh, the history of this, this place. And what had happened was that there was this mayor of Mijas, a man called Manuel Cortes, pretty common, common name, who had during the Spanish Civil War been on the Republican side, the anti-Franco side. And after Franco's victory, his life was in danger, you know, because Franco was rounding up previous opponents and getting rid of him. And so his family told him that he should leave the country, and he said he didn't want to. He wanted to stay home. And so in the end, they hid him. They hid him in their own homes for for two decades. And he's dressed in drag to go on the street? There was an alcove in a house where he would be in the... De- and they would push a wardrobe up in front of it and he would be in this little alcove for the daylight hours and then he would come out at night once they were sure <laughs> that everything was shut. And there were moments when the family had to move house and then he had to dress up as a woman in, in, in order to, to, to move from one place to another and His wife would have to walk to another village uh, to to shop for food so that people didn't see that she was buying too much food for one person, and so on. And he actually did live in this hiding. The book was called In Hiding, and he lived like that for 20 years. There are
0: certain similarities. Uh, You know, Marianne sneaking out to buy food so Mm -hmm. that no one would recognize
1: her. You once wore a wig. That was, yeah, one of the most ridiculous episodes episodes where the, the police, you know, they said to me, they said, you know, we have a lot of experience in this kind of thing, and we know that all you have to do is to alter your appearance a little bit, you know, and suddenly people don't realize it's you. So they said, you know, we'll get this wig for you, we'll get it made for you by our expert wig makers, and then you'll be invisible. You know, you'll be able to walk down a street and nobody will even look. And I, of course... I found it very hard to believe, but they were saying, you know, trust us. And I said, okay, went along with it. And so there was this day when this wretched thing arrived. And I said, well, we better take it out for a walk, you know. And I put it on. And we went to the middle of London, to just just near Harrods Department Store. And I got out of the car with this thing on my head. And people on the sidewalk literally burst into laughter. You know, people, people, people were literally laughing and pointing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was so embarrassing. I heard, I heard somebody say, "Oh, look, there's that bastard Rusney in a wig." <laughs> and, and I just dived back into the police car and took it off my head. And I said, "You know, I'm never wearing that again."
0: There are several other stories in the book, Joseph Anton, including stories about some of your friends. Uh, you were pretty close with Christopher Hitchens. Yes.
1: Yes. And you know, one of the things that I wanted to say about that is that, you know, people would sometimes ask me in those days whether my friends, whether people I knew were sort of inching away from me, you know, sort of shift, you know, shifting their feet and sort of running, making for the exits because they didn't want to be... Um, endangered by association, you know. And the actual truth, which is a rather remarkable truth, is that it's the exact opposite of what happened. What happened is that my friends drew closer to me and wanted to be more supportive, with really very little regard for their own safety, for for any possible risk to them. And Christopher is a case in point, because You know, I had known him, I was friendly with him, we had many friends in common, but I wasn't one of his, or he wasn't one of my, you know, close buddies, because he was living in D.C., I was living in London, we didn't see each other that often, we enjoyed seeing each other when we did, but that was it. Once this happened, once the fatwa happened, it outraged him. It became a very profound event in his life, I think, his intellectual life. And he made the very conscious decision of stepping much closer to me, of becoming a much closer friend and ally, and uh, uh, became, you know, a colossal ally. I mean, if you're in this kind of a fight, you know, you want Christopher on your side. <laughs> you know? uh, He's an amazing person to have on your side. You see, I, I can't use the past tense. Uh, you certainly wouldn't have wanted him on the other side. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> well, after talking to Martin Amos about... Being with him in a pub, and the last thing you want to do is watch him
1: get angry at someone else because you can't get him out of the pub. No, no. It was, I mean, Christopher was a, you know, he was a, he had a very naturally combative personality, and he was really good at it. Yes, you you don't want to get into an argument with Christopher.
0: Do you think that the fatwa on some level influenced him to such a degree that he broke with the left and supported the uh, Iraqi
1: invasion? I think the 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 kind of double whammy was first the fatwa and then the 9/11 attacks, uh, which he saw as I do, th- 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 that they were connected to each other. You know that they were a part of the same phenomenon, and his conclusion from that was that the left, or let's say non-right wing—I don't think there really is in that sense much of a left in America. You know, but, um, certainly by European standards, even the left is quite right-wing here. Um, but he felt that the people he'd always been politically associated with in the past were sort of getting it wrong and making excuses and, and being critical of America rather than of this phenomenon of Islamic extremism and that the people who were paying attention were on the right and so Christopher never being one to do things by halves leapt across that fence, you know? and I mean actually much to my confusion really because because although I, like him, believed that this was a big phenomenon and that people were misunderstanding it. I certainly didn't feel any kind of kinship with the kind of Dick Cheney's of the world, you know, and found it bizarre that he was able to be on that side for a bit. And I think, oddly, the thing that rescued him from the American right was when he he wrote about God. You know, I think so, because his attack on God unquestionably detached him from the right and sort of gave him back to us, I think. (laughs) So God saved Christopher Hitchens in a way. (laughs) (laughs) You also have a very touching
0: portrait of Edward Said.
1: Yeah, well, Edward was an old buddy of mine, you know, and and very, I mean, such a great mind. And, And so, I mean, I remember, for instance, that after the attacks on the Satanic Verses began, Edward went and lectured in Muslim countries, in my defense. You know, and that was not a small thing to do. He went across North Africa and Egypt and, you know, and, and addressed large rooms full of largely hostile crowds you know, in, in my defense and was so respected himself that they would listen to him, you know. And somebody always, I paid a lot of attention to, and actually before, before the satanic verses was published, I showed him a manuscript of it and said, what do you think? You know, And he said, well, the mullahs aren't going to like it. Which I said, well, I know that, but they didn't like anything else I wrote either, you know. <laughs> and, and I mean, we agreed that, that that they probably wouldn't like it, but that wasn't a reason for not doing it. The great mistake, yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is, you know, I was saying to you earlier about reading my journals and discovering the state of mind of the person writing them. And this something happened around, somewhere around sort of year and three quarter mark, it was about somewhere in late nineteen ninety, when I was in a very low state of mind. Partly because it just seemed unending and I didn't know how I was ever going to get out of this and it was, you know, I was feeling very low. Also because there was all this external pressure on me, not just from the media, not just from politicians, but also from British public opinion when opinion polls were taken as they were. Which basically suggested that this had sort of been my fault and it was up to me to fix it. You know, you broke it, you fix it. That was the attitude. And I was in a kind of despair. At the time and i allowed myself to be suckered into something which i much regretted and still do which is uh, into an encounter with a group of islamic leaders who were sort of promising me the world saying you know if you can come and we can come to an understanding we'll get rid of all this we'll get it fixed for you you know i mean i really wanted to believe that i thought here's something i can do and maybe i actually can get this fixed so i went to this meeting with, with i can't remember how six or seven of these islamic figures and they produced this piece of paper that they said you know they wanted me to sign, and when I read it, I, it re, I realized that it contained a declaration of religious faith, which I mean, it was obviously ludicrous because I don't. That's not how I think. I've never had been a person of religious faith and they said but they said basically they said that's the price of the ticket You know if you do that then we can get rid of everything else But you have to do that and I think now That it was quite clear that they were luring me into a trap that they were never intending to do any of the things They said what they wanted to do was to get me to discredit myself And I was in such a poor state of mind that I agreed to sign this thing you know, and did and left this room and immediately f- understood that I'd betrayed myself in some way, that I'd done something that I've always thought of as the stupidest thing of my life. And actually, it was one of those moments when your body knows it for, before your mind knows it, because I started throwing up. So I just actually felt physically sick. I mean, not in a s- metaphorical way, but literally physically sick. And then, of course, all my, the people who were close to me started yelling at me, I mean my sister, who knows me better than anyone else. Um, started calling me up and saying, what the hell are you doing? Have you gone mad? And I thought, you know, maybe.
0: You didn't talk about this with anybody. You just decided to do
1: it. Yes, I know. And You're I, dentist I, of all people. This this, this terrible Egyptian <laughs> dentist who lured me into this trap. But I don't blame anyone else. I mean, It was my fault. And, but, you know, what I say in the book and I came to really believe is that that moment was a pivotal moment in my life, not just in this story but in my life as a whole, because it cleared something up in my head. The chapter which deals with this in the book is called The Trap of Wanting to be Loved. That's what I, I thought, you know, if I can just do this right, I can make everybody understand that I'm not a bad guy, I'm a good guy, and they will just they will say, oh my goodness, we made a terrible mistake, sorry, we love you, let's get on with life. And idiotic, right? And the thing I learned from this is that that, uh, that was a trap. I thought to myself, you have to understand that there are people like this who are not going to like you. They don't like you you know, and guess what? You don't like them either. So stop trying to mollify and appease them. And I just understood that point. Okay, here's what I think. I think these things. I believe in the art of literature. I believe in freedom of the imagination. I believe in the kind of liberties that we enjoy in in these lucky countries of the world. And I'm just going to say that, you know, and if you don't like it, to hell with you. You know, there's going to be no more Compromise on issues where there should not be compromise. There's going to be enough with appeasement and apology and mollifying and all that Hell with all that. I'm just going to fight my corner. And I think ever since then, you know, from that day to this I felt uh, a kind of clarity. I thought, you know, I know who I am. I know what I'm for and I know what I'm willing to fight for. Is
0: is that the reason why you're willing to fight for the paperback edition so hard?
1: Yeah, I mean I just knew that look, we were fighting for the survival of a book, you know. And we all know I mean this was an age before ebooks. We we all knew that the the only way you can allow a book to survive in print in the long term is in paperback. You know, the hardback has a certain life, and then it stops having that. It stops selling. And if you want the book to just stay around, there has to be a paperback edition. So if there were not a paperback edition, the book would eventually disappear from the shelves and we'd have lost the battle. So it was very important that we managed to safeguard the publication of the book. And that could only be done by producing a paperback edition. And that's why the fight was. It wasn't because, you know, the paperback in itself was something, you know, totemic. It was because it was the only way to preserve the book. And it's still in print. And, you know, it's still in print in whatever, you know, 50 languages. So I think in the narrow spectrum issue of the attack on the novel and its author, we didn't do so badly. You know, we managed to defend that turf in the larger issue of the fact that it scared people and it's made people a lot more wary of anything to do with Islam, you know, I think that that there are still some big problems there to be overcome.
0: Salman Rushdie, as I finished the book, I kept thinking, okay, if he had gone on that path of just being a writer, I'd have interviewed you, you know, I've interviewed a lot of these people, but your life would have been very different. You wouldn't have become a major celebrity. You wouldn't have been hanging out with Bono. Well, you might have been, but probably not. Mm. In retrospect, having gone through nine years of hell, if you had it to do over again, Mm. what would you think?
1: You know, I'd prefer it not to happen. I mean, the truth is, if the satanic verses had just come out and been treated like a novel and had its life as a novel and had gone on and written the next novel, that would have been better. That would have been better. I would have preferred that life. You know, because I was forty-one at that time. You know, the forties are supposed to be uh, supposed to be the prime of life. You know, and, and my forties were all spent in this trap. In another life, I would like to have them back, please. I'd like to be able to spend more time with my little boy who was growing up then. And I was perfectly content with the literary life that I had. You know, and and I would be would have been perfectly happy to go on having it. You've been listening to a twenty-twenty. 2020- You've been listening to a 2012
0: interview with Salman Rushdie about his memoir, Joseph Anton, and his years in hiding from the Fatwa. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.